Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. A little bird was flying south for the winter. It got so cold, it was starting to actually freeze. And then it fell to the ground in this large field. And while it was laying there, a cow came by and it dropped some manure on it. But as it lay there in the pile of manure, it began to realize how warm it was. The manure was actually starting to thaw him out. So he lay there, all warm and happy. And soon he began to sing for joy because he was warm and he was warming up. But then a cat happened to be walking by. And he heard the little bird singing, so he came to investigate what was going on. He heard about this cat, and he came, and he followed the sound, and the cat discovered the bird under the pile of manure. And he dug him out, and then he ate the bird. Now, the morals of the story are three. One, not everyone who drops manure on you is your enemy. Number two, not everyone who digs you out of a pile of manure is your friend. You can laugh. It's pretty funny. And number three, when you're in the manure, keep your mouth shut. Amen. Let's try to make it a little more biblical this morning. Paul once told Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The gospel of Christ had reached the Gentiles at this point in the book of Acts. A church had been established up in Antioch, but now there was another threat taking place. And Luke records for us this. He says, Now at about that time Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during the days of the unleavened bread. Now Luke is actually taking us back in time a couple of years before the end of chapter 11, before Paul and, and Barnabas in Antioch. But before we can actually move forward, we need to identify, when the text talks about Herod here, we need to identify which Herod in the Bible that we are looking at. Herod the Great, he was the one who had the children of Bethlehem killed after the birth of Christ. He was the man that had 10 different wives and at least 14 children, and he had some of his own children killed. Here in Acts 12, this is his grandson, Herod Agrippa I. And the Herod here in Acts chapter 12, even his own father was murdered by Herod the Great. His father murdered by his grandfather when Herod Agrippa was just very young, three or four years of age, just when you thought you had family problems. 
You see, Herod the Great, the grandfather, the one that tried to kill the infant Christ, when he killed Agrippa's father, his mother knew that he needed, she needed to get Agrippa out of there as soon as possible. So he was sent to Rome to be educated. And he grew up as a family friend to some powerful, powerful people. Two future emperors, Gaius and Claudius, were two of Agrippa's childhood friends. In 37 AD, Emperor Tiberius of the Roman Empire, he died, and the new emperor was Gaius. Gaius appointed Agrippa king over the lands to the east of the Jordan River, including Decapolis. But in 39 AD, Gaius gave him even more territories to control. And at that time, Agrippa was given Galilee and Perea to control. And then in 41 AD, Gaius died, and Agrippa's other childhood friend, Claudius, became the emperor. Claudius added the territories of Judea and Samaria to the territory that Herod Agrippa ruled over. So by 41 AD, Herod Agrippa was ruling as king over all Judea, Samaria, Galilee, and Decapolis. Herod Agrippa, he had some Hebrew blood, but he wasn't really one of them. He was always trying to please the Roman Empire and remain at peace, while at the same time always striving to please the Jews. In fact, he made great efforts to try to satisfy the Pharisees and keep them happy. Agrippa himself, he is said to have practiced the Jewish faith when he was there, when he was in Judea, when he was in the land of the Jews. But history isn't so kind to him. We know that when he was away, he conveniently abandoned any professed faith in, in the Jewish God. Now Agrippa, he knew the Jews were upset about the rise of the Christian faith, especially at this point in history, because word was out that the Christians were teaching that salvation is through faith in Christ alone, and that you didn't need to become a Jew first. With the Jewish people upset, Agrippa, he looked at this situation and realized, hey, if I persecute some Christians, I could get some favor now with the Jews. So the Greek reads in verse 1 that Herod laid violent hands on some of the Christians. And so then we read in verse 2 that Herod killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now, James here is the brother of John. We know, therefore, that this was one of the sons of Zebedee and that James was an apostle of Christ. This is the first apostle of Christ to die for his faith. And if Herod executed James in typical Roman fashion, I don't think he did, but if he did that with the sword, then he would have been beheaded. If he used the Jewish method of execution, which is what I think he did, because it forbid beheading because it was seen as a desecration to the human body, he would have had the edge of the sword thrust up through his body. But the death of James here is actually not the main point in the text. Notice verse 3. It actually gives us the motivation. The reason that Herod now had Peter arrested is because Herod saw that the death of James pleased the Jews. But why Peter? I mean, ask yourself that. Why Peter here? Because Peter was one of the leaders of the apostles. Herod knew that this would help him with the Jews if Peter would have been the next one to face his own death. 
Herod, he didn't want to risk. This guy was always politically motivated. He didn't want to risk losing favor with the Jews by executing Peter during this time because that too would have been considered a desecration to the Hebrew people. Now the Passover, you remember, was eaten on the evening of the 14th of Nisan and was followed by seven days of eating unleavened bread ending on the 21st of Nisan. And at the end of verse 4, Luke used the term Passover to refer to this entire period of time. Herod's plan basically was this, to hold Peter under arrest until after this entire period was over. And no doubt have some sort of sham of a trial, some public trial followed by his execution. But notice the heavy security in this text that Herod put in place for Peter. He wasn't messing around at all. He delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him. Now, each squad had a total of four soldiers, so we can do the math here. That means about 16 guards, right? And this was the usual Roman pack practice where they would change guards every three hours throughout the night to keep the guards fresh and alert. Sometimes they went every six hours. Tight security. Why? Well, probably because of what happened already back in chapter 5. Because it was back in chapter 5 that the Sanhedrin had already arrested the apostles, put them into prison, and an angel of the Lord had let them out. You can't let that happen again. Herod couldn't take any chances. Herod had to wait for days for the Feast of the Unleavened Bread to be over. So verse 5 then teaches us that Peter was kept in prison. But what did the church do? How did the church respond? Well, the church made good use of its time. Notice the wording. Constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. You see, this was the first century weapon for the church. This was the battlefield. Instead of seeing thousands of Christians protesting and taking to the streets, what do we witness? We witness the strong testimony that they turned to the Lord Jesus Christ in a time of crisis. Paul as much said the same thing to the church of Corinth. He said later on, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. You see, Peter had a target on him. The sick had been healed. Demons had been cast out. The liberating gospel of Jesus Christ had been preached throughout the land. And those that wanted to rule over these people with the legalistic traditions of men, they could not handle it. They wanted Peter dead. But eventually, Peter managed to get some sleep. Take a look at verse 6. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Herod was about to bring Peter out of prison for his trial. Peter evidently had been in there for days. This was the last night of the Passover, adding to the tension for the church because it was getting closer and closer and closer to his time of death. James was already dead, so would Peter be next? Remember what we said, four guards to a squad. Now, that meant soldiers chained to Peter on either side and two guards at the door. Down in verse 10, we learn that there were two guard posts, giving us the idea that it might have been one guard at each post. And the impression we get from verses 6 and 7 was that Peter, oh, he was out. He was fast asleep. 
Peter had been in there for days and would need to sleep at some point. You know how it is when you guys traveled up here. Same thing. At some point, you got to sleep. You just crash. And I think Peter got to that point. Exhaustion set in. Herod was about to bring him out for trial. Peter had enough peace to be able to sleep. I wonder to myself if the words of Christ were still going through his mind. Because after the resurrection and before his ascension, Jesus has actually, he had told Peter this. Do you remember what he said? He said, most assuredly I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. Now, I'm not going to sit up here and pretend that I could know what was going through Peter's mind back in Acts 12. But if Peter had a firm understanding of what Christ had told him years before, he had nothing to worry about until he was a much, much older man. Now all of a sudden, God intervenes. Verse 7, behold, take notice, an angel of the Lord stood by him and a light shone in the prison. But even this wasn't enough to wake up Peter. The angel had to poke him, literally poke Peter in the side, raise him up, telling Peter to rise quickly while the chains fell off of his hands. I have teenagers like this. They sleep like this. Peter didn't have a massive plan to escape. He was half awake and had to be told what to do. All the way through this text, this is the sovereign God of the Bible using one of his angels to set Peter free. Peter, gird yourself. Peter, tie your sandals. Peter, put on your garments and follow me. And as Peter obeyed the angel, take a look at the second half of verse 9, especially those of you that tend to like to walk in your sleep. So he went out and followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. So they passed the first century, guarding the inner gate to the cell. Perhaps the Lord had caused these guards to go into a deep sleep like Saul's men in 1 Samuel when they were after David in the cave. They passed the second gate safely, and then they came to the outer gate that led to the city, which was an iron gate. Luke tells us here in verse 10 that this iron gate had opened to them of its own accord. Peter would have been held in the Tower of Antonia where the Roman troops were stationed. And you can see there that it was located at the northeastern corner of the temple complex. Its entrance on the eastern side, you can see it on the bottom of the screen, it led right out into the city streets of Jerusalem. But even this iron gate posed no problem for Peter and this angel of the Lord. But notice how far the angel took Peter in verse 10. They went out, they went down one street, and that was it. The angel immediately departed. You see, Peter was safe. And finally, in verse 11, Peter begins to fully come to himself. Take a look at what he said. He said, and now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of who? The Jewish people. Notice again, it was not just Herod, but it was the Jewish people and the religious leaders that wanted Peter dead. You see, Herod was about to learn the very tough lesson that no prison could hold a man that God wants set free. 
Maybe you know the old story about a woodpecker who was a little too proud. This woodpecker was tapping away one day on a dead tree, just over and over, tapping, 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 when all of a sudden the sky turned black and the thunder and the lightning moved in, and this didn't bother the woodpecker. He just kept on tapping on this dead tree. And suddenly a bolt of lightning, it just struck this old tree and it shattered it into a hundred pieces. Well, amazingly, this bird, he was unhurt. And the last thing that one could hear him flying off telling all his friends were, Hey, everyone, look at what I did. Look at what I did. Be honest with yourselves. Do we do that? Sure we do. We do that all the time. That's what we do because pride creeps in when we least expect it. And it could have been a danger for Peter at this point. After all the events of being set free, we could imagine easily Peter just strutting his stuff, walking around saying, look at what I did. But again, as Peter shook off the cobwebs, what did he say here in verse 11? He said to himself, now I know for certain that who? The Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from the expectation of all the Jewish people. You see, Peter had learned over the years to trust in the plan of God for his life. Give God the glory when something good happens in your life. And also, here's the other part of that. Learn to worship God for who he is when the good things don't happen in your life. James wasn't delivered from Herod, was he? He was the first of the apostles killed for his faith, but Peter was spared. That's not fair. <laughs> That's not fair. We could say that. That's not fair. One dies, one doesn't. Why? Because of the sovereign will of God. You see, faith is not trusting God to give you what you want. Faith is trusting God to give you what he wants according to his plan. It is the reason that sometimes God chooses to heal and at other times he takes his people home. And sometimes, I think as a pastor, he takes the wrong ones. But you know what? Life and death... Life and death are in the hands of the sovereign God. It's his creation. It's not ours. It's his church. It's not ours. It's his people. It's not ours. And God wanted Peter set free. No matter how many chains and guards Herod put in his way, Peter would be set free. Peter must have realized that the streets were not safe for him. So verse 12 tells us, Peter came to the house of Mary the mother of John Mark. If you've ever wondered why he's got two names, it's just simply this. John was his Hebrew name, Mark, which I think, by the way, is a great name. That was his Greek name. Follow the family connections. John Mark and Barnabas were cousins. Hard to know how many Christians are gathered together here. At one point in time, you remember from our earlier studies that in the Church of Jerusalem, it was made up of thousands of believers. Then the church scattered because of the persecution of Saul. But huddled up here in one of the homes was a group of believers praying for Peter. And Luke tells us many were gathered. Then look at the next two verses. Don't tell me that God doesn't appreciate humor. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda literally rose, came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. Rhoda left the guy that they'd been praying for at the gate. 
And from the wording, we think that she was a servant. Mary wasn't poor, probably a very large home, but she opened it up for the believers to meet. Rhoda, she recognized Peter's voice. She knew Peter. She heard his voice at the gate, but got so excited that she just left him there, left him at the gate. Now, that's the very last thing that Peter needed. He needed to get off the streets, but she left him there, standing outside the gate. Now, here's where we can grow. Here's where we can be challenged in our faith. It was the middle of the night, and this group of faithful followers of Jesus Christ were staying up so that they could pray for Peter. I wonder as a church if we would meet like this. I wonder as a church if we would pray like this. You see, the Western church today has gotten so used to this idea that God just wants one hour on Sunday. That's not what God wants. He wants a community of believers working together, ministering to one another, praying together, and loving one another. Verse 15. But they said to her, you're beside yourself. Literally, you're out of your mind. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, it is his angel. Now Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were just astonished. When I was a kid, my parents took us tent camping in Canada. I was little, maybe Annika's age, about five or six. And one night, we'd been warned at this campground that there's been a bear, a nuisance bear in the campground. So they warn you over and over and over, lock up your food, keep an eye out, don't roam around on your own. Well, my parents warned us again before we went to bed that night. And that night the moon was full, and it was a beautiful, bright night. And in the middle of the night, sorry, but nature called. And sure enough, the moon was shining on our canvas tent. And as I woke up, I saw the unmistakable shadow on the tent, the outline of a large bear sniffing around the tent. Now, my entire family is sleeping. I'm young. I'm five or six years old. My entire family's not just sleeping. They're snoring. So I quietly tried to wake up my mom. I started shaking her. And I told her that, hey, mom, there is a bear outside the tent. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Finally, the second time, she woke up just a little bit in a kind of a half sleep and told me, don't worry about it. It's probably just a man that dropped his toothbrush walking around on all fours. And she told me to go back to bed. Now, l listen here. I knew a bear could visit, but it was a little unexpected when it actually happened. And I think that's much the same here. You see, the church, they obviously believed in prayer. They believed in prayer, but it was a little bit unexpected when God answered that directly, that quickly in the middle of the night. And let's face it, let's just be completely brutally honest. Even in prayer meetings, there's sometimes a bit of doubt. There's sometimes a bit of unbelief. Because I'm sure they'd prayed for James, but he was killed. So they said to her, you are beside yourself. It cannot be. But Rhoda kept insisting. So they said, it's his angel. Now, why would they say it's his angel? You remember that it was the Jewish belief that each person has a guardian angel that could take the appearance of that person. And they believed that your angel appeared after your death. Meaning, in other words, here they thought that Peter was dead. 
Now you hear this taught today a lot that each person has a guardian angel. But let me just say this. Angels do intervene. Angels do protect people as God directs. But there's not actually a verse in the Bible that teaches us each person has a guardian angel. It's also possible, by the way, here in the text that they just thought this was Peter's messenger. So the Christians, like classic Christians that we are, we, they, they're debating. And Peter's outside knocking. And Luke tells us that when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. They were taken aback. They found it easier to believe that Peter had died and it was his angel at the door than it was that God had done exactly what they had just been praying for. You see the irony there. Before we judge them, remember the last time that you were amazed and excited when God directly answered your prayers. Notice verse 17. But motioning, can you picture this? I can. Shh. <laughs> but motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Peter actually had to calm them down. Now why? Well, let's think of the practical situation. They didn't need the neighbors waking up. They didn't need the Roman soldiers getting notified and coming around. And they most certainly didn't need the word of this escape getting back to the Jews. But notice what he told them. First, it was about what the Lord had done. He gave the Lord credit. And then, go tell these things to James and to the brethren. Now, only one person is named here by name that they need to go tell. James, the oldest half-brother of Jesus. Significant why? Because there's a transition taking place at the church in Jerusalem. You always see in the early part of Acts, Peter was leading the charge, leading the church of Jerusalem. But now from this point forward, it changes, it shifts. Peter is no longer leading them. It now becomes that James takes on this role. But notice Peter doesn't even mention the other apostles here. It could be that they'd already left Jerusalem because of the persecution from Herod. But there's a definite shift in the text towards James and the elders of the church of Jerusalem. So Peter departed. Peter hid, quite honestly, probably left Judea until Herod died. Now, when the guards awoke the next morning, they had a significant problem, didn't they? They found no one attached to the other ends of the chains, and Peter, he was not there. Verse 18. Then, as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. I like how Luke puts it here. There was no small stir. There was no small stir among the guards. Why? Because under Roman law, any guard who allowed a prisoner to escape would face the same penalty that the prisoner would have suffered. And what was Peter facing? Death. Peter was facing death. And so these guards knew right away, automatically, they knew if they could not find them, it would be their death. So what did Herod do? He interrogated the guards. Herod couldn't find Peter. Herod ordered them to be led away to their own death, to their own execution. At least four Roman soldiers faced their death, maybe more. The end of verse 19 breaks us into our last few verses by teaching us that Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea. The year was now A.D. 44, and we think that Herod was in Caesarea to attend athletic games in honor of the Roman Empire. 
And Luke tells us this. He says, Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord. And having made Blastus, the king's personal aide, their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. Now we know that Herod was an angry man, angry here with the people of Tyre and Sidon. You see, these coastal cities, they depended on the food from the territories that good old Herod controlled. Meaning if he was angry, they had a significant problem. They might not get their food. So they came together. These two cities were considered to be free cities, independent cities within the Roman Empire. But they depended on Galilee for wheat, olive oil, honey, and other food. Herod had ordered a ban by this time on shipping food to them. So what did they do? Well, they actually bribed Herod's personal aide. And Luke tells us the man's name was Blastus. The people got this man's help in dealing with Herod, so they asked him for peace. And verse 21 says that it was on a set day. It was on an appointed day that Herod, he dressed in his royal apparel, sat on his throne, and gave an oration to them. Now, Jewish historian Josephus records that it was the day of a festival in honor to Caesar. And according to him, the royal robes that were worn by Herod were made of actual silver, and they reflected the bright morning sun. And as he spoke to the people, notice in verse 22, the words of the crowd. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Why? Because the people wanted food. The people wanted food. They just wanted to flatter this prideful man so he would make peace with them. Being worshipped as God and king was a part of the customs of the time. And some reports actually tell us and indicate that Herod had placed well-trained men scattered throughout the crowd to shout out when the sun hit his garments just right. That the light reflecting off of his robe proved that in fact he wasn't just a mere man. That this was actual proof that he was God. And the people kept shouting over and over, the voice of a God, not of a man. And the text indicates this went on for some time. Now he could have and should have rebuked the people for referring to him as God. But he didn't. He delighted in receiving the glory and praise that belongs to the creator alone. In other words, he loved every single minute of it. But the God of heaven, he's not mocked. God does not tolerate men and women exalting themselves above the creator. It is said that Herod at once felt a stab of pain in his heart. He began to feel an intense pain in his stomach. They brought him back to the palace, we know, as quick as they could. And after five days of pain in the abdomen... He died at age 54. Luke makes it very clear to us of what happened, doesn't he? He says, then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And a horrible way to die. He was eaten by worms and died. Herod, think of this, was carried out of the theater a dying man and would die from the same exact disease that killed his grandfather, Herod the Great. He was filled with worms and died a horrible, painful death after reigning as king for only just a few years. Two Bible verses come to my mind. One is Exodus 20 where we read, For I, the Lord your God, 
am a jealous God. And then also Isaiah 42, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another. You see, there is both mercy and judgment with God. In this chapter alone, what do we see? We see an angel of the Lord deliver Peter from death, and we also see an angel of the Lord strike Agrippa down because of his arrogance and because Agrippa would not honor the God of glory. The pride of man ended in the wrath of God. There's a pattern there. Herod made a public spectacle of the death of James, and he sought to do the exact same thing with Peter. But in the end, the Lord struck Herod down before a large crowd giving honor to him in the very same theater that his grandfather had built. With his death, the persecution of the church ended for a time. And once again, we see in verse 24 that the word of God grew, the word of God multiplied. And then verse 25, we'll get back to next week, but it, it moves the narrative forward. Barnabas and Saul, they returned to Antioch after delivering the love offering for the church of Jerusalem. Having completed their ministry, they headed back to Antioch, bringing John Mark with them, setting the stage for our next passage in chapter 13. In my life as a pastor, I have seen God do some mighty, mighty things. A church in Hyde County, North Carolina, saw this same thing, too, back in the year 1874. They had a small group of believers, smaller than what we even have here. And they decided for the first time it was time to build a permanent building. So they do what all churches do. They got together a committee, and they talked about it, and they debated it. And they picked out a perfect site for a new building. It was in the heart of a town on the highest spot in their little village. And they prayed about it. And then they approached the owner of the lot, a man by the name of Sam Sadler. And they asked him if he would consider selling his land. But Mr. Sadler, no, he would not sell his land. Well, they were disappointed by this. But the congregation, they accepted other property in town that was offered to them as a gift. And then they began to build their brand new building. Well, it took over a year to construct the wooden structure set up on rock piers. Even before it was finished, they began to worship in it. And just before they dedicated their new church building, on September 6th of 1876, a huge storm, a good old southern storm, if you will, swept through. Well, the rain just kept coming. And the wind blew. In fact, the wind was so fierce and the tide rose so high that the force of the water, it moved this little church building off of its foundation. And the building, it actually began to float down the road. And it went straight down the road to a corner. And then it bumped into the general store in town. And then the floating building took a sharp right turn and floated about two city blocks down that way until it reached the corner of what is now Church Street. Then it moved slightly off course. It took another turn to the left and crossed the Carawan Canal. And eventually it settled. But where do you think it settled? It landed exactly in the center of Sam Sadler's property. He became so convinced he'd seen the mighty hand of God work at this situation. So he just immediately sold his land to the church. And to this very day, you can actually visit it. Providence United Methodist Church in Hyde County, North Carolina. I have seen a God who has done mighty things in answer to prayer. You've seen it. 
But we've also seen sometimes that heaven sits silent because it wasn't his timing or it wasn't his will. And how he answers our prayers rests in his sovereign will. But I know that the scriptures do teach us to pray, don't they? And that the scriptures do teach us that prayer can make a difference. Moses, he prayed, and God spared the nation of Israel from judgment. Joshua prayed, and God caused the sun to stand still. I just think Joshua was in Alaska in the summer. Hannah prayed, and God gave her a baby boy. Solomon prayed, and God gave him wisdom. Elijah prayed, and God sent fire down from heaven. How cool is that? Jonah prayed, and God brought him out of the belly of a whale. Paul and Silas prayed, and God opened up the jail cell. And the church prayed in Acts chapter 12, and Peter was delivered to them. What do we pray for when we pray? Ask yourself some questions. Do we truly seek God do we humble ourselves before him? Do we confess our sins to him? Do we expect him to answer? Do we pray for people in this community to be saved? Do we pray for the salvation of our friends and family? And when we pray like this, do we actually believe that God will answer? I'd say maybe. Maybe. When you pray... Do you pray for God to make you a blessing to others? When you pray, do you pray for the leaders of this church? And when you pray, do you pray that God will build his church? You see, I believe that a praying church is a church focused on God. A church that prays is a church that worships. A church that prays is a church that gives. A church that prays is a church where people grow in their faith. And isn't that the goal? And a church that prays is a church where love and mercy are seen for God's glory. A church that prays is a church that knows God is the answer to every single problem there is. And that God can break any chain that binds. A church that prays is a powerful church. And the church in Acts, it proved this to be true. But if God knows everything already, then why pray? Well, first, I'll give you two reasons this morning. One is because God wants us to learn to not take him for granted by assuming he will make things happen the way we want them to happen. And because God wants us to develop that relationship with him, just as we talk with our families, our friends, God wants this day-to-day -day relationship with you. So I end with this. Pray according to his will. Pray with a thankful heart. Pray with a grateful heart and pray for his honor and his glory to be shown in your life. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening. 
pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.